The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I have to say I have so much faith in uh, the kind of work that we're doing here together. I don't know if you can sense um, I'm not sure quite how to say it, but just how impactful. <laughs> I mean, it, it has different qualities being in this retreat soup together, sitting, walking, getting lost in thought, returning to the body, feeling the tender heart, feeling the feelings that we feel. I mentioned the phrase the other night, universal solvent. There's something about sticking with the practice that has this capacity to dissolve the hardness and the disconnection and the ignorance, closed-heartedness. And uh, certainly isn't always pretty and it definitely can be painful, maybe even often painful, but something beautiful about that. I love the story that Sylvia Borstein, some of you know her, one of our elders in this Western early Buddhism insight meditation scene, and I think she was describing her first insight meditation retreat and was in somebody's home, and Above the mantle was a sign, you know, and they were sitting. Maybe it was a weekend retreat or a four-day retreat. So she'd see the sign quite a bit. And it said something like, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? So... uh, one of the, you know, what makes the soup so potent, it isn't just enough to kind of sign up for the retreat. It's really the combination of the, you know, the community, the relative safety that we feel, hopefully some of the time, maybe even a lot of the time, goodwill, kindness that we feel, but one of the essential aspects of the solvent, what loosens everything up, are these teachings. And, uh, you know, in different places in the Buddha's discourses, he talks about, you know, how we first check out a teacher. We sort of check them out. We observe them from a distance. We see if they walk their talk. And only after observing for some time, then we actually listen to the teacher, right? We get some new information that challenges the status quo of our mind, like how our mind thinks about things, how our mind understands experiences, experience. And this new information causes us to take a second look, to open, right? Especially these teachings strongly encourage that with a new frame, with a different frame. And so like one of these very potent little teachings that we consider that we sort of, as we're in this soup together, rubbing and scrubbing, mostly rubbing and scrubbing with our own mind and emotions, you know, part of what's rattling around in there is are these different teachings, including the teaching around the difference between pain and suffering, or what even suffering is. Because, you know, as Wynne talked about last night, there's this very ordinary and unavoidable pain of, you know, just the normal insults that we bump into in life. We stub our toe, 
we experience the pain of loss, you know, insight, uh, insult, the not so good half of the eight worldly winds. Some of you know that list from the Buddha. Gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And so these are just ordinary, unavoidable. Nobody misses. I mean, it's different for different people. Some people get you know, more than their share of blame or whatever, pain. And other people seem to get more than their share of the good stuff. But everybody rolls around with these ordinary disappointments in life, including aging. So dukkha, dukkha. And then even when we're experiencing things that are pleasant, success, for example, on some level, maybe not consciously always, but on some level, the heart knows that it's not going to last, that, it, that it's not dependable. And even in a more subtle way, the Sankara dukkha that Wynne mentioned, the most subtle kind of dukkha, that the whole, you know, our whole existence is sort of built on misperception or not understanding clearly. We could say, we could say built on a lie, built on delusion, which makes the whole experience of being a human being uneasy. That's the wheel out of true that Wynne mentioned last night. So how do we square the you know, the reality of pain, the inevitability of pain, with the freedom that's talked a lot about in the tradition. You know, that's teachings, the practice is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, right? We have a lot of examples in the teachings that this is not a morbid or depressing story that the Buddha was teaching or that other people from the time on, from the time of the Buddha on, have been talking about. It's really a positive story. But positive in a way that's out of the box, not in the normal way, ordinary way we think about it, because we so clearly associate positive with managing our pain, getting rid of pain, having some freedom from the insecurity and vulnerability, the exposure of life. And you know, the Buddha, the Buddhist teachings are very realistic. They're not optimistic or pessimistic. They're realistic. Like, yeah, vulnerability is just what is really the essence of life, change, no ground, nothing to depend on. So then the question is, given that, given that life is the way that it is, what is the skillful way? What is the way to relate that is liberating, that leads to real happiness? It's a very pragmatic question. So, you know, it's useful to use those two words to to help clarify our predicament. Yeah, pain is pain is unavoidable in life. Sometimes it's really thick, sometimes it's relatively light, the pain we're experiencing, whether that's mental pain, spiritual pain, physical pain, emotional pain. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is not inevitable. So what's suffering? Suffering is the mind having a problem with pain. Or suffering is the mind resisting pain. Or suffering is the mind relating to pain in an unproductive way. Taking pain to be a personal problem. And 
that, like I said, it's out of the box. Because we feel pretty confident that <laughs> pain is bad. And it's, it always feels a little strange to be up in front of a group, even talking this way, you know. I mean, it'd be a little bit more believable if I personally was experiencing a lot of pain, of loss, physical pain, pain of oppression. And to be able to then say, yeah, pain is one thing, suffering is another. To even point, as the Buddhist teachings point, to a way of being in the world, which means a way of being in the world of gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, without the suffering. But this is our predicament, like, are we interested in that? Are we interested in loosening our understanding of what pain is and what it isn't, what disappointment is and what it isn't, what loss is and what it isn't, what living in a world that is unjust and unfair, what that is and what that isn't. Are we willing to actually look with interest or open with humility and interest? Or are we content to be sure that the way to relate to the various kinds of pain is to get tight, is to get tight with denial or tight with anger, tight with greed, tight with resistance. There's a really, as most of you have heard, I'm sure, potent story from the Buddha's, you know, right, him describing his own turning from sort of living an ordinary life of lining up pleasant experiences to becoming, you know, a spiritual seeker. He's really talking about these two searches, a liberating search, a search that is liberating, and one that isn't liberating. And so one translation goes like this, I too practitioners before my awakening, when I was an unawakened bodhisattva, bodhisattva, Right, someone on the way to awakening. Being myself subject, being subject myself to birth, sought what was likewise subject to birth. Being subject myself to aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement. Right, defilements are these patterns or forces in our heart that torment the mind and heart. I sought happiness and what was likewise subject to illness, death, sorrow, defilement. The thought occurred to me, why do I, being subject myself to birth, seek, right, seek happiness in what is likewise subject to birth? Being subject myself to aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement, why do I seek what is likewise subject to these same things? Right? Does it make sense that we're putting our eggs in a basket that isn't dependable, isn't reliable, that comes and goes, right? Birth and death. There's a shadow to every pleasure, every sense pleasure, for example, right? That it won't last, for example. He goes on, he says, what if I, being subject myself to birth, seeing the drawbacks of birth, right? So birth is sort of the, just the symbol or the word representing just the ephemeral, not dependable, unreliable duality of pleasure, pain, gain, loss, fame, disrepute, praise, and blame, that you don't get one without the other. If we do receive a lot of success, we are immediately, somewhere, consciously or not, worried that whatever we've gotten 
will be taken from us. Whatever good fortune or fame, privilege, then there's conscious or unconscious resistance to the movement, the change of that fame or privilege or success. What if I, being subject myself to birth, seeing the drawbacks of birth, were to seek the unborn, unexcelled rest from the yoke? That's sort of unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding. That's how Tanisaro <clears throat> translates Nibbana, the unbinding. Unexcelled rest from the yoke. So yoke is sort of an interesting word. So what is... What is it that's yoking our heart to the flow of experience, right? See, experience is undependable, unreliable, because it's always in motion. It's always becoming something else. So even when we hit a sweet spot and we're around lovely friends and having harmonious relationships and the body feels relatively good and very sweet experience, that isn't a thing, it's a movement. It's not done yet. It's always becoming whatever it's becoming, right? And as long as our happiness is yoked to the world of sense experience, then it's unreliable, it's unsatisfactory, it's not dependable. So says the Buddha. We're to seek the unborn, unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding. What if I, being subject myself to aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement, seeing the drawbacks of all of this, were to seek the agingless, illnessless, deathless, sorrowless, unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding? Doesn't mean we know what that is even, right? We just, it's really the beginning of the beginning, as uh, Payment Children says in this article that I'll read from in a moment. Right? That seeing the limitations of the stream of society, you know, consumerism, self protection, <clears throat> basically living out of our, um, our animal conditioning. Seeing the limitations then, like, oh, that, that can only bring temporary pleasure. Is there anything beyond that? And so we become a seeker at that point. I mean, that's sort of what makes somebody on a spiritual path. We, you know, take some time away from the ordinary pursuit getting away from unpleasant experience and holding on and finding pleasant experience. We still do that, right, all of us. But presumably, if we're a spiritual aspirant, then we're, we're sort of finding some contentment so we can take our eye off of that ball, trying to get rid of the unpleasant and find pleasant, and doing this more primal research what's really going on here. And really, using this information, here's, a, I think, this uh, little chapter from Pema Chodron, a couple pages from her book, When Things Fall Apart, a wonderful book. Most of you know who Pema Chodron is, a Western Tibetan teacher. <laughs> and just, I have to say about Pema Chodron, too, you know, if you know anything about her lineage, um, it's got to be really, on some level, painful, just given the, you know, the, her teachers and, and the reported abuse and sort of strange and seemingly unskillful behavior. And yet, on another level, seemingly very wise, or at least useful as teachers. 
I don't know about others, but like one of the most impactful books, right? I think the first year of my meditation practice in like 1983 maybe was uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's book, uh, Spiritual Materialism. So anyway, I just, I, I find that just to sort of something, it's like one of the images that's universal in the Buddhist tradition is the lotus with its roots deep in the muck of the swamp and something rises out of that that's quite beautiful and unstained. And so here's some teachings from Pema Children, <laughs> very provocative teachings. On the benefits of hopelessness. I won't read the whole uh, two-page thing, but I'll read a few paragraphs. So she says, she writes, the difference between theism and non-theism is not whether one does or does not believe in God. It is an issue that applies to everyone, including Buddhists and non-Buddhists. Theism is a deeply seated conviction. I'll be ready for sacred cows to be illuminated. <laughs> it is a deeply, it is a issue that, oh, here we're, okay. Theism is a deeply seated conviction that there's something, that there's some hand to hold. If we just do the right things, someone will appreciate us and take care of us. It means thinking there's always going to be a babysitter available when we need one. We are all inclined to abdicate our responsibilities and delegate our authority to something outside of ourselves. Non-theism is relaxing with the ambiguity and uncertainty of the present moment without reaching for anything to protect ourselves. Non-theism is realizing that there's no babysitter that you can count on. The whole of life is like that. That is the truth, and the truth is inconvenient. Now, that's a very potent teaching on the truth, the liberating truth of dukkha. And the, and the question is, are we willing to be in the soup with that teaching, like to kind of let it inform our life as we live here on retreat, and then, you know, like that teaching on hopelessness. There's nobody who's going to save us. There's nothing. There's no saving to be done. There's another paragraph I want to read here. As long as we're addicted to hope, we feel that we can tone our experience down or liven it up or change it somehow. And we continue to suffer a lot. In a non-theistic state of mind, abandoning hope is an affirmation, the beginning of the beginning. You could even put it, abandon hope. You should put that in quotes, abandon hope. You can even put that on your refrigerator door instead of more conventional aspirations like, quote, every day in every way I'm getting better and better, unquote. <laughs> Scotty, some of you know Scotty, uh, who ran Dharma Corps for a while, one of our leaders here and on our board. And they um, gave me a sticker a while back that comes out of the Against the Stream community that Scotty's been part of. And it, I think one of their phrases is meditate and destroy. Is that what it is? Meditate and destroy? Yeah. So it's, it's that, uh, it's, it's similar to abandon hope. It's that provocative, book title of the Korean Zen master that came to the States a while back and it's quite influential. If you see the Buddha, something like, if you see the Buddha on the side of the road, kill it, right? If you ever construct something in your mind that's going to save you, abandon hope because it's not. Because there's an immediately a problem, right? As soon as there's a theistic sense of being saved, there's somebody who needs to be saved, there's somebody who's afraid of not being saved, afraid that whatever they thought is going to save me is just something I thought up or that we together have thought up. You know, the emperor doesn't have any clothes.
And she goes on, we hold on to hope and it robs us of the present moment. If hope and fear are two different sides of the same coin, so are hopelessness and confidence. If we're willing to give up hope that insecurity and pain can be exterminated, then we can have the courage to relax with the groundlessness of our situation. When we talk about homelessness and death, we're talking about facing facts. No escapism. So Buddhism isn't pessimistic or optimistic, it's realistic. No escapism. Giving up hope is encouragement to stick with yourself, not to run away, to return to the bare bones no matter what's going on. If we totally experience hopelessness, giving up all hope of alternatives to the present moment, we can have a joyful relationship with our lives, an honest, direct relationship that no longer ignores the reality of impermanence and death. In another place, Pema Chodron has this simple line I just love about like how to describe, how to use the idea of refuge. And she writes something like, refuge, our deepest refuge is uh, not holding back, not holding back. Not holding back from our life. In in that book, I mentioned uh, spiritual materialism by Trungpa Rinpoche, um, one of Pema Chodron's important teachers. Very controversial Tibetan teacher who came early to the West and started Naropa and the Shambhala tradition. But in that book, he, he's talking about Milarepa, one of the great saints of Tibetan Buddhism from long ago. And uh, <clears throat> his practice was humming along and uh, in this really beautiful description in Tibetan Buddhism, it's quite ornate how they talk about the mind and different aspects of the mind. And because his practice was humming along, you know, the, one of the expressions of the wisdom, the deepening wisdom, were this, these uh, feminine expressions of wisdom uh, in the tradition called Dakinis, and they were dancing around in the space of his practice, chanting lovingly to him on the steep, this is in the book that I read back way back when, on the steep slope of fear and hope, demons lie awaiting. When our mind is involved with fear and hope, we can bet the demons are just waiting. They're just about to pounce, right? We're in the realm of dukkha, of suffering. So abandon hope. <laughs> it's nice to smile at something like that, like, it, it means it's coming in a little bit like it seems so ridiculous. A good friend, uh, Paul's photograph is uh, next to the Kuan Yin statue, died recently. A really dear friend, although he's been out of town now for the last 10 years or so. Um, and one of our early teachers here at Common Ground and one of the early leaders and founders of the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective. Some of you have met him, maybe. I know maybe Nora remembers Paul. Um, but he uh, uh, died, I think, uh, maybe late November, early December, so not long ago. And we connected uh, via email when I first found out about his cancer in the summer, uh, early August or something like that. And yeah, I just want to read a little from his uh, email that he sent me. And uh, we were kind of texting back and forth a little bit later. And, uh, and he sent me a photograph of him, you know, and he's being emaciated with the cancer. And, and uh, he was always, you can see from the photograph, kind of a charismatic, magnetic, attractive human being. And uh, so he's like really thin and a little emaciated. He's playing with his grandson and uh, daughter and 
and um, and I wrote back. I texted back after seeing the photograph. I said, "Oh, you look like a wise old man." <laughs> and uh, he sent me this famous quote. Many of you have heard this: "By the awful grace of God." I don't know if you know the whole part. This is from um, Esselus, this one of the Greek uh, playwrights. You know, wrote those. Greek tragedies way back when, 400 BCE, something like that. And I guess the line is something like, he who learns must suffer. Sounds very Buddhist. Right? There's something about meeting suffering that's liberating. I love this line from Sharon Salzberg's book, uh, her book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Something like, Suffering isn't redemptive. Opening to suffering is redemptive. Right? There's something about meeting suffering with humility, with interest, that is really redemptive. So the, the quote is, he who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. In our own, in our own, Despair, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. (laughs) That's sort of what I was trying to get at when I was saying about staying in the soup of our practice, year after year, decade after decade, minute after minute, you know. Again, from Pema Chodron, never underestimate the desire to bolt. Right? But just kind of like turning back toward our experience, our life. This is how it is, our world. The imperfections, the messiness of our conditioning, of our world. Because otherwise, the alternative is to be really negative. Like if we're at all sensitive, it's very appropriate to have a negative view of the world. I mean, it's incredibly unjust. I mean, on any level, like what we do with other creatures, what we're doing with the planet itself, how we treat people who are different than us, how we even treat the people we supposedly love. Right? I mean, it's amazing. When I see, I mean, that in a way, you know, just in our gritty relationship with my partner here, Speaking for myself, (laughs) I mean, the real, for me, the real expression of love is that when is willing to put up with the hate and the ignorance and the protectiveness and, you know, all the expressions that are, that keep showing up and make space for it. And to some degree... I can do the same for her, right? Keep making space. <laughs> Isn't that romantic? <laughs> but it's the truth, you know? And it, it's so, for me, so incredibly trustworthy that I see her do that for me. Because I, it's like, powerful modeling, because I have a hard time putting up with who I am, like in terms of the conditioning of this mind and my intestinal gas. (laughs) You know, and all the other, just what comes with being close to another human being. And to see somebody make space for that is really, you know, it's amazing. Like making space Paul did in this letter that I'm going to read now. I didn't read this yet, did I? No, okay. So I'm not going to read everything in the email, but this is his first response. I, when I heard about his cancer, I reached out to him via email, and, and then this was his res- part of his response. It has been quite a journey for sure. I am happy and most gratified to report that all the internal work I've done has really shined through as I engaged end-of-life illness, loss, and grief. 
the fact of dying much sooner rather than much later has not been much of an issue. In fact, there have been many benefits. It has made it has made it easy to drop a few more of my compulsive concerns. No need to worry about long t- long-term dental care. People listen to me. When I play the death card in a conversation, <laughs> since I'm at ease with the prospect, it prevents a great opportunity to model something that people seem to respond to. We can often have deeper, impactful interactions as the conversation turns from poor Paul to life, death, dukkha, freedom, and the like. These are issues that I've always cared most about and would much rather talk about than have inane chit-chat. Lastly, I've really come to appreciate the great gift, the greatest gift of all, that my life is in love. I never really knew this. Diana, who's uh, Paul's partner, says, of course, lots of people love you, but I never really got it. I'm now overwhelmed by the kindness and kind concerns, concerns of so many people. I reflect upon the many deep, rich connections that I have in my life and it can make me cry with joy. And I think this is, uh, you know, the, the real experience of love is that often just momentary transcendence or stepping out of the realm of dukkha, of resisting pain. I mean, We know this. This is not an experience unfamiliar to us, I think. These moments of real love, if we let them in, if we have the wherewithal to investigate what is happening, to investigate the freedom, right? Because it's a freedom from stinginess when we acknowledge love. The Buddha, I love this, right after, soon after his awakening, you know, and, and just sort of trying to figure out what to do. It's sort of, he was confused. It seems that way initially. What, you know, what to make of the transformation in his heart. There's a, kind of a funny story, some of you know, where as he started to wander, you know, he spent, as the story goes, I think 49 days or something like that, several weeks, just hanging around the tree in the area where he had his deep insight, and then eventually decided he'd try to track down his old friends, Dharma friends, and try to share. And luckily he had this, you know, these stories, you know, we really never know whether they're historic or just part of the legends or stories. But it's a very, I think, powerful story. And I think it's unique in these sort of religious, spiritual systems that the first thing the holy guy, the saintly guy does, you know, is make a fool out of himself. So he's wandering and he bumps into this person. Um, What's his name here? Anyway, I'll just I'll come upon the person's name at some point. But anyway, he's wandering, and this person says, uh, "Hmm, there seems to be something about you. You know, your faculties are clear, complexion is good, you're bright. You know, who's your teacher? How have you been practicing? What have you been up to? Why do you look so good?" Right, basically. And the Buddha, you know, this is an opportunity to teach. And he kind of missed the opportunity. He kind of just sort of launched into this sort of amazing statement. All vanquishing, all knowing am I with regard to all things, unadhering. It's a nice word, unadhering. Uh, 
all abandoning, released, and the ending of craving, having fully known on my own, to whom should I point to as my teacher? (laughs) I have no teacher, and one like me can't be found in the world with its dewas, right, the angelic beings even. I have no counterpart, for I am an arhat in this world, fully awake. That's what arhat means, right? Free of greed, anger, and delusion. I am the unexcelled teacher. I alone am rightly self-awakened. Cooled am I, unbound, to set rolling the wheel of Dhamma. (laughs) (laughs) The person was brave enough to put in another statement. He says, from your claims, my friend, you must be an infinite conqueror. Conquerors are those like me who have reached fermentation's ends, right? There's no more fermentations going on in my heart. I have conquered evil qualities. And so Upaka, that's a person's name, I am a conqueror. When this was said, Upaka said, may it be so, my friend. And shaking his head, taking a side road, he laughed. (laughs) Right, so they, I mean, as a story, I mean, who knows, but as a story, it's really interesting that here's somebody evidently with a lot of insight but wasn't able to help somebody who actually had some interest. I mean, it wasn't just some Joe, but this person had enough sensitivity to sense that there's something special about this person. You know, their ease, their well-being shines. So it was sort of a setup for the Buddha to offer something that might be functional usefully functional for that person, and he missed it. Now, as the story goes, you know, the sutta that Wynne and I have been talking about, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, sutta, right? The teachings on the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha had some wandering to do. I don't know how many miles it is, but it's quite a distance between where he was and getting to where his friends were. And that's where he gave his first real Dharma talk. This was just a failed attempt at a Dharma talk, right? And the sort of whole point of that Dharma talk, teaching about the Four Noble Truths, is that somebody got it. There was another human being, somebody who was already pretty sensitive, had been doing a lot of spiritual practices, but he heard the teachings and they were useful. So that person's mind opened, saw what it needed to see, saw what it wasn't seeing, right? And so that's what makes somebody a Buddha, is that not only are they awake, but they can articulate what happened to them in a way that is useful for other human beings. Right? So then we don't have to be a Buddha, someone who can awake without any help, because we have help. We may have the same insight as the Buddhas, but we have a big help. These, you know, I, I really like that image of chewing or sort of bumping up against these teachings, like having enough confidence that we're willing to keep chewing on these provocative teachings, abandon all hope. And let it have its, gradually over time, let it have its effect. Turn toward pain. Get interested in pain. Get interested in the irritations in the heart. They're teachers teaching the heart about the reality of freedom or being unbound. And we know the experience of being bound. So it's not that we don't know nothing. We, it's not, <laughs> too many negatives here. Right? It's not only that we know what being bound up is. If we know what being bound up is, we have some intuition of not that, not being bound up. Right? Even if we don't know the experience of being bound up, we know what it's, of not being bound up, because we know what it's like to be tight, to be afraid, to be angry, to be brokenhearted, to be all the different things we are when we're suffering. Can we be interested in not that? That's a, that's a pointing out instruction like, and you see it's, it takes, it's a real act of faith or confidence 
because we're, we're pretty identified. We're selfing around suffering. I mean, self is really synonymous with the experience of suffering. This dualistic experience of suffering, you know, happiness and unhappiness. One of the teachings, some of you have heard me read it, because I read it a lot, or you've come across it yourself, in Achan Cha's teachings, you know, the riverbank, and on one side is happiness, and the other side is unhappiness. And our job as a practitioner is not to get confused by both of those banks, happiness and unhappiness. That's the freedom, not to be obsessed about happiness and unhappiness. So maybe I'll use the last 10 minutes and just uh, give a, a, you know, use some more specific um, examples of like how we work with physical, emotional, social pain. You know, the, we have, we've done the work, healing work, therapeutic work of becoming sensitive, learning how to handle, learning how to sustain sensitivity in a world that makes it really hard to be sensitive, right? So we not only are in the soup, we know we're in the soup of joy and sorrow, the heart being impacted by joys and sorrows constantly. So we can say, like the insights from the first noble truth, there is dukkha. Dukkha is relevant. It should be understood. It has been understood. These are three insights the Buddha talked about in that first talk. And think about in your own life that powerful turning where you realized that dukkha, suffering isn't just a problem I have, it's relevant, like it's a teacher. It should be understood, I'm now a powerful devotee of suffering. Every irritation, every fear, every wave of hatred, every wave of greed, every movement of hope, every movement of fear. Oh, you've come back to teach me. What's the teaching here? So understanding, like that's a neat word, right? We stand under, we stand with. Some of you know Rev Anderson, we're in the downtown of suffering, right in the middle learning to relax. And that sets up the second, the teachings, the insights, the learning of the second noble truth. There is a cause. There's an, it's a lawful thing. It's not, suffering is not a personal thing. It's a lawful, conditional thing. The resisting of pain, the denying of pain, the striking out against pain, all of the unproductive ways that the heart relates to pain, to insecurity, vulnerability, injustice, all the unproductive ways we relate, that's lawful. In a way, it's natural given how the mind is understanding. But now we're deepening understanding because we realize there is a cause. The cause is right here. It's playing out. Suffering is arising right here. It's an activity right here. There is a cause. The cause should be abandoned. The cause has been abandoned. So let's think about this like with something ordinary like emotional pain, feeling a lot of anxiety, a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of knee pain, being really cold, being lonely, feeling insecure. So these are very common experiences of pain and suffering when we resist these common experiences of pain. So there is dukkha here. This is relevant. It's right here and it's relevant. And I'm opening, I'm relaxing, I'm 
feeling into, and that, you know, that, that's a huge step. Sometimes, like we've talked about in the instructions, sometimes we need to turn away and seclude the mind from the suffering to get refreshed and then turn back. Sometimes we bring in compassion to create stability to be with it. Sometimes we get interested in the underlying feeling tone. Is it safe to relax with this unpleasantness, to be interested, exposed to the unpleasantness? Is it actually dangerous to feel what I'm feeling right now? To drop out of the story of what's happening to me or what's happening to the world and just to feel what it feels like in the heart. It's so compelling to stay in the level of the story of what's happening in the world, what's happening in my life, but to really respond to the question, well, what does it feel like? What's the feeling here? Can that feeling be included? Can it be given permission to move, to express itself, undefended, open, actually curious? And then we see that it's sort of the insight then, oh, this is the cause. We really see the activity of attachment, identification, as it's arising right there in the moment. Oh, this is the cause. That identification, that attachment, that grasping, that holding, that should be abandoned. Now, that's not the same as saying, Mark, stop being attached. Stop taking this personally. Right? That is more suffering. Telling ourselves to let go is suffering. Demanding that we let go, feeling bad that we're not letting go is suffering, is more suffering. So really get the pointing out here from the Buddhist teachings. There's a cause, it's right here in the heart. Like one of the images the Buddha used, a thorn deeply embedded in the heart very easy to miss for lifetimes until it's discerned, oh, the mind's grasping, it's clinging, it's attached, it's identified, it's taking this natural process personally, and that isn't helping, and it should be abandoned. And so that's that place of profound patience where we're willing where there's enough clarity, where the mind knows that it's hooked, it knows that it's suffering, right? Because it's done the first three insights. There is dukkha, should be understood, it is being understood. It's beginning to develop the second set of three insights. There's a cause, it's right here. It should be abandoned until that moment arises when the mind, the heart, the wisdom sees it has been abandoned. Attachment has ceased. Not because I've let go of attachment or you've let go of attachment, but rather because wisdom was willing to be intimate with seeing the attachment with wisdom, which means I'm seeing attachment and I'm understanding that it should be abandoned. I'm understanding that it's not helping, that it's not necessary, that there is nothing in the world that demands attachment or identification, or grasping. Compassion doesn't depend on grasping. Powerful, engaged, fearless action, raising your children, changing the world for the better, providing yourself shelter and food that's good for the body, doesn't depend on grasping. It depends on compassionate action. So, Abandoning, seeing that attachment can be abandoned does not mean disengagement. This is the wrong understanding, the shadow that is there in Buddhism, the misunderstanding that non-attachment is the same as a kind of nihilistic disengagement with life. Doesn't matter, can't be fixed. Instead, that non-attachment frees the mind or frees the heart up for engagement. Because compassion or love, whatever you want to call it, works 
very well as a motive force in our lives. I mean, if we just study history of positive change or just pay attention to our friends, because in moments we'll notice our friends being motivated by love and we'll see how much good can be set in motion. Right? And we see other people being motivated by greed or hatred or but some expression of attachment. And we see there's always, you know, they might get somewhere, but there's always pushback. Right? It's sort of an equal and opposite. So this is something we can directly work with in our practice, this second set of insights. When there's enough stability, enough um, momentum, and we're able, we're willing to, and good fortune too, so that we're not overwhelmed by the pain and difficulties in our life, in our lives, then we can do the first three insights. Yeah, there is suffering. It should be understood. It is being understood. I'm intimate. I'm open. I'm honest. I'm practicing not being afraid. Ah, now I'm really seeing into it, and I see the cause. Cause is this attachment to desire, identification with the movements of the heart. It's not desire itself, it's misunderstanding desire. Desire is nature. Any desire is nature. But taking it personally is seen as the cause for suffering. So we keep observing that with the understanding it should be abandoned. It's not helping, honey. It's not helping anybody. It's not helping anybody. The place of great patience. We're letting the mind do what the mind does, the conditioned mind do what the conditioned mind does, but wisdom is doing its job, right? It's right in the middle, feeling what we feel, seeing the momentum of attachment, the momentum of taking desire personally, taking the movement, the movements of our hearts personally, seeing that it's not helping, it's unproductive, seeing it, seeing it, until that moment ripens and letting go happens. That's the way to think about it. Letting go happens. And when it happens, then we've seen the third insight of the second noble truth. Right? There is a cause. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. It opens up the whole third noble truth, which is realizing freedom, the maturing of one's experience of freedom. Right? And this is what develops faith and confidence that there's something to do with life other than hope for the best. Whether your hope for the best is your own personal selfish pleasure or you want the whole world to have some utopian uh, situation. That's one scenario. The other is seeing that the world is always going to be emotion. So even if we were, the world were to get to that perfect utopian situation, it's not a stopping point. Right? And, and just as we've seen in this country some progressive and positive improvements around justice, equality, we also more and more recently see that the idea that it's only going to go one direction was just delusion. If something can go up, it can go down. And there's never going to be a stopping point. I mean, that's just, isn't that just apparent in nature that it's just a, it's kind of, when we say it out loud, we realize how deluded it is that we're going to get to some place called good, justice, fairness, everyone ha- happy and healthy, and then, just like we never get there ourselves, even though we've Hopefully, we've had some good fortune, have had nice moments, but then life keeps moving. It becomes something else. So let's take a few seconds, let go of the words. Keeping it simple, there is dukkha in life, it's relevant, 
should be understood. The heart is open, has an honest relationship. This is a natural phenomena, dukkha. It's lawful, it has a cause, causes attachment to desire. This attachment to desire should be abandoned. Really to see that truth, that it should be abandoned, it's not helping. Realizing moments of the letting go of attachment. Beginning to realize the heart free of attachment. What is the heart free of attachment? So we'll do some walking practice now, maybe 10, 12 minutes. Thanks everyone for listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.